welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. My name is Matthew Dawkins, and I am joined by my co-host Eddie Webb. Hello. And not Dixie Cochran. Hello. <laughs> Uh, poor Dixie has uh, had it taken out of her somewhat after she got a second jab. And yeah. so uh, due to time constraints, we're doing this recording sans Dixie. Uh, we will pass on that you all miss her. We miss her. Uh, but the the chain of industry never stops. The production never halts. And, you know, this is the this is the way, this is the world we live in. We must always put out a podcast every single week. God damn it. The, the best part about this whole scenario is it gives the illusion like we know what the hell we're doing. It does. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, it's like, you know, well, Dixie can make it, so we're going to go ahead and we have a strict timetable and blah, blah. It's like, it, 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 I like the illusion that we have this, this podcast so organized and structured that like, even a minute's deviation throws everything off. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I mean, I, it might look more organized if we had more flexibility around it. Most of the time we do. Uh, but this week, this week, there's lots of meetings. And I find for my work process, meetings are the great barrier, the biggest obstacle, the minefield. Use whatever metaphor you like. They, they are what interrupts my flow of writing and development more than anything else. And so meetings if I can get out... Yes, meetings are the mind clip. If I can get out of a meeting, God damn it, I will. Um, I was in one the other day that was scheduled for an hour, and as soon as I got in, I said, do you think we can wrap everything up within 30 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's not that I don't enjoy talking to my colleagues. Uh, I do. I love talking to my colleagues, especially because I don't actually get to see them. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm also aware we have a lot of projects on our plates, and some of them are coming up for Kickstarter. How about that for a segue? Yeah, uh, so before we actually get on to that, uh, because no one wants to hear us get straight into the topic, they'd wonder what the hell's going on. Of course on. not. I mean, that, that, would, that, would, that would just throw off our whole aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, have you had any feedback on the design diary from last week? Actually, I have. Um, one of the advantages of us doing these kind of uh, a few days before we release, which we don't know what to do, but we can do stuff like this. Um, I can actually talk about what people said. And, and I've actually heard a number of people say that they were really excited about Anima as a result of it. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I was nervous because um, I talked a lot, a lot of the um, difficulties we ran into uh, in, in terms of producing it uh, and also some of the, the content of it. Uh, but frankly, just a lot of folks I think are really excited about it. a lot of people get now i think what we're trying to do with it because if you don't have some of the context it's a, it's a strange topic it's like it's a cyberpunk game but there's an mmo you play it's like that's what that's kind of odd. yeah um so i mean being able to kind of dig into that and how it all relates and spending that time i think is really helped people get really really enthused about it um and of course people are intrigued by the mystery i'm not talking about which i'm not going to talk about <laughs> um but uh yeah, no, um, I, I've had a lot of questions come out, and some I've answered in the Discord, some I've had to be coy about because I don't want to reveal everything before yeah. uh, the Kickstarter goes live. One of the interesting things, uh, the questions that came out of it was uh, people, one person was concerned if we felt like it was too close to Ready Player One. And uh, it, it's something that comes up a fair bit with some of our games, particularly the Trinity Continuum games, because it can be pretty... Um, easy to find an obvious 
pop culture analog. So for example, adventure, it's like, oh, well, why didn't you mention the Indiana Jones films, for example? Uh, and I wasn't worried about it because one of the things is that there are a lot of media in the genre of person trapped in a video game. I mean, Tron is ultimately person trapped in a video game, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I didn't feel like it was derivative. And also I, I feel like Ready Player One's doing a very different thing than what we're doing with Anima. Uh, so I was like, I'm not worried about it, but also there is an advantage to people thinking that because it makes it easy to explain the game. Yeah. Uh, f- uh, so, I mean, if you think about it, uh, Anima is um, Ready Player One meets uh, Neuromancer. You know, I mean, it's kind of a quick kind of summation of it. But I've also used that for things like Pugmire. It's like Pugmire is uh, Lord of the Rings meets Battle of the Apes. Lord of the Rings meets Planet of the Apes, but with dogs. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, both do work and that kind of quick summation helps people to get it and so it's it's interesting because like you have to find a balance of something that people can gravitate to and understand and so something like this which is an unusual game being able to say oh it's like great player one is helpful for people to understand and grok what you're trying to go for because then once they're in they can find the differences and expansions and deviations and tweaks you put onto a product um so similar like with they came from beneath the sea it's like oh it's mr science theater the role-playing game okay cool i get what you're trying to do with that game even though it's very different than mystery science theater in a lot of ways yeah yeah i can see that i mean uh, that's something that occurred to me while i was listening to your design diary uh, the first thing i had in mind with anima was is this like better than life in red dwarf Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Where yeah, where people spend potentially years of their life plugged into VR consoles because that's better than the real world, and mm-hmm. so I, I that that was almost my primary frame of reference when I went into Anima, and as you started to unpack what the game was like, there are elements of that, and there are of course elements from lots of other media and wholly new elements too. Right. But uh, as our dear colleague and my arch nemesis Ian A. A. Watson often <laughs> points out, the uh, <laughs> that he will often say, you know, oh, if you want to play this game, then play Trinity. You know, if you, mm-hmm. if you want to play in this movie, then play Trinity. Trinity is a very expansive game with a lot of different. Uh, nooks and crannies, avenues and tangents that you can follow, and it seems to satisfy all of them. But I'm quite keen on Anima and the way it, it scratches that VR, that MMO itch in a way that I've not seen any other TTRPGs manage. So, and I mean, yeah. uh, it, it, but even like other um, stuff we've worked on, like I remember when, I don't think we talked about this in our uh, NWE deep dive. But um, one of the things that came up early on, and frankly, one of the things I think sold it to Rich was the fact is it's also our Street Fighter pastiche. Yeah. And there is a chunk of fan base, including, including me, that, that really has a, a weird affection for the White Wolf Street Fighter role-playing game. And so one of the things I know you and I talked about was with Nova Combat specifically, you know, there's this idea of this is an authentic competition between weirdly powered people in grungy environments uh, that are traveling around the world for vague reasons to involve themselves in a tournament. And it's like, you could do that. Um, but that's not an obvious inspiration, but it, but it's, again, it's a hook that if someone who's not necessarily a wrestling fan 
It's like, oh, but did you like Street Fighter role-playing game? Yeah. Well, you can also do that with this. Oh, okay. So um, sometimes having those inspirations, again, is, is a kind of a hook to, to bring people in. And if a game is done well, having a few different hooks that you can then tweak and adjust. So like you said, um, with, with Trinity, Ian a lot of times will mention, if you like Mass Effect, uh, you'll like Aeon. But on um, May the 4th, Star Wars Day, um, I also said, hey, if you like playing um, people with strange powers in a sci-fi universe that's largely optimistic but has some seedier edges, you might enjoy an Aeon. Uh, because Aeon is – it's not like Star Wars. It's not necessarily the same tenor as Star Wars, but there's a lot of Star Wars you'd see in Aeon if you wanted to dig it out. Yeah. No, definitely. And uh, especially as you get into the Under Alien Skies stuff, which I was mm -hmm. very yep. happy to have edited. Uh, that's an excellent book. I think people are going to really enjoy that one when it comes out. Uh, and it's it's interesting. We mentioned Street Fighter, and I also have affection for Street Fighter RPG. I only got to play it once, mm -hmm. and I have sold off my books the, now. But yeah. uh, there is something quite quite pleasant about the simplicity of a plot where uh, some kind of evil godlike dictator has an island independent rogue nation mm -hmm. and invites the world's most powerful fighters to it to duke it out so that the most powerful fighter can go up against him and he can basically consume their soul or power it's it's a no-win situation for the contestants quite honestly but that is M. Bison, or what I think he is called Dictator on the arcade scene, isn't he? Um, yeah. It, that's his MO. It's very similar to Shang Tsung's MO in Mortal Kombat. But it, it works, and it works in NWE, too. You can mm -hmm. do that. You could, could quite easily have some kind of Nova that's like a, a battery or, well, a, a vacuum for uh, for talents and novas, syads and so on, that he is arranging this tournament so that he can see the best of the best pit themselves against each other and then compete against him. And once he fights you, he will drain you of all of your power yeah. <laughs> uh, if he beats you. It's, it's lovely, it's simple, but it can work for a nice three or four parts uh, NWE aberrant storyline. Uh, especially if you have to go in to investigate it. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I maintain the Street Fighter movie, while awful, is still not absolutely awful. There are some, <laughs> there are some, there are some kernels of gold, and it isn't just Raul Julia's uh, performance. There's some some good parts of that that I think there's a reason a lot of role playing games can get cheesy, can lean on tropes, and it's because players are familiar with the, these things, and it right. makes them comfortable to relate to things they already know. So, the fact that something like the Street Fighter movie, or even the new Mortal Kombat movie, have such obvious uh, I guess heritages, uh, mm -hmm. that just, that's good. It makes the viewer feel relaxed when they're watching, gives them a frame of reference, and you could, you do the exact same thing with role-playing games and shouldn't feel guilty for hamming it up. But then again, that that's my entire MO through They Came From. Never feel guilty about making something silly if it also makes it entertaining. Yeah, I mean, um, one thing I saw that was interesting is uh, during the pandemic, uh, apparently uh, uh, Netflix uh, talked about some of their viewership figures, and they saw an uptick in people 
rewatching material they'd watched before on Netflix. Hmm. Um, and anecdotally, I think a lot of that is due to the fact that it's you can reacquaint yourself with beloved characters. You know all the plot twists coming ahead of time. So there's a comfort in the predictability, right? Yeah. It, it's the, I know what's going to happen next. I know where this goes. And so I'm just enjoying the journey because I'm not worried about, oh, what's actually going to happen? Who's, is someone going to die? But I know how it's all going to land in advance. And so there's some comfort in that. I know how it's all going to lay out. And so I think sometimes tabletop role-playing games can, and I would argue even maybe should fall in there. Like if you're playing a They Came From game, you know, you're not worried about your character's mortality in the same way of like, say, a Chronicles of Darkness game or even a Call of Cthulhu game. Um, even though they're all ostensibly horror games at their core, you have a very different expectation. It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to punch this fish guy in the face and say, you know, <laughs> tastes like mama's apple pie. And you could do that in any of the games, but the expectation of what's going to happen in a They Came From game is very different than those other games. And yeah. if there's be comfort, it's like the, I'm not going to be punitively punished for taking funny actions in this kind of game. And so I, I'm more relaxed and more likely to try new things. Whereas in a more traditional classic horror game, the point of the game is you're not entirely sure that, that uncertainty, that dread is, is part of the game. And that's a different kind of fun, but mm. neither is good or bad. Yeah. I mean, I, I was in, in an interview not that long ago where I was uh, talking about the, that expectation of horror as well. I mean, this is very much off topic. We got so close to going on to topic that we <laughs> ran in the opposite I know, I direction and haven't stopped running. <laughs> that in a game like Call of Cthulhu or Masks of the Mythos, you can have these wonderful horror scenes where the player characters will spend an hour plus standing on the other side of a door too afraid of opening it and mm -hmm. working out all the possible ways they could open this door so that whatever's on the other side doesn't kill them so quickly. Mm -hmm. And that is sometimes the most fun you can have. And the reason is because players have that meta-gaming expectation of, well, this is a horror story, so there is bound to be something terrible on the other side of this door in this very dingy dungeon you know that is uh, clad with gore and bones and everything like that this is the only room we haven't searched we haven't found the monster yet there's got to be something behind this door and they build it up for themselves they build up the tension and it's because they know you know that they know on some level even if the characters don't that there's got to be something there and i i like a game that rewards that, that isn't constantly trying to subvert that expectation. Sometimes you should, certainly. But I think playing to expectation as well, and in some to some degree, when you were talking about anima, there were parts of your explanation that uh, was making me think, okay, I know this, I know this kind of trope, I know mm -hmm. this, this plot beat, and I'm happy that I know it. Because it allows me to play this in a way that I'm comfortable. I don't need to learn something completely uh, invented from whole cloth because that can be quite intimidating. And, you know, that, that differs between tastes. Different people have different tastes. Some people love to come, well, read a brand new setting, a brand new rule set, go into a game completely fresh. Other people don't have the time, maybe don't have the energy. And for me, Anima really walks that that fine line perfectly from how you pitched it, uh, more so than any of the other Trinity games 
to date. So I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, well, speaking of uh, punishing players... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, nice segue. Before, Good job. Yeah, before, no, I don't. I don't mean that because the next subject we're going to talk about is going to be a topical one, and I want to get your take on it. Uh, okay. Hot off the presses, as of yesterday, uh, the uh, the company Renegade Entertainment uh, mm-hmm. announced the V Five Sabat book. Now, mm-hmm. Eddie and myself, some colleagues, have known that this book is coming for a while. Uh, I and some of my colleagues have had the chance to read it, uh, and uh, we can say, you know, we 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 think the content is excellently written. It's not Bionic's path, but it doesn't mean we can't say we don't think it's excellently written. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, in fact, we should, you know, give praise where it's due. However, uh, there has been a little bit of controversy that I suppose is worth addressing, and that is there's some corners of the internet right now that are a little upset that this book appears to be positioning the Sabbat as an antagonist-only group. Mm -hmm. And as you were a long-term vampire developer, I mean, I guess both of us have been now. Yeah. uh, I wonder what your view is on that. Uh, as a fan, I suppose, more than anything else. But uh, if you want to give your view as a game designer too, I'd be interested to hear it. Well, I mean, uh, uh, let me start by saying that uh, I have long been a fan of the Sabata's faction um, as a player as well as a designer. Um, I thought that while it is extremely fair to say they have been presented extremely unevenly throughout the history of Empire of the Masquerade, um, when it is presented well, it's a genuinely interesting and compelling faction, and there's a lot of uh, of compelling gameplay. I keep saying compelling, but a lot of good gameplay you can get out of playing in human monsters if you have the right safety tools and if you have the right context and if everyone's on the same page. Uh, you can do some really interesting stuff with that and tell some very good stories that you can't necessarily tell with with the camera or the anarchs. Yeah. Um. So I could see why some people are are frustrated by that potential change. Um, as a designer, I, 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 I'm of two minds. On the one hand, I know that nothing is forever, right? Like um, uh, there's been lots of times where I've been like, well, this game doesn't offer this. And then there's a the parenthetical yet that's unspoken. Yeah. Uh, uh, games are constantly evolving and changing. New books are coming out. New editions come out. Uh, so just because this book is not for it now doesn't mean it never will. Uh, there could be all sorts of reasons behind the scenes that we're unaware of as to why that may or might be offered now. Um, so on the one hand, it's like, okay, well, this book just isn't maybe for me or it's just not giving me what I want right now. But it's also pretty easy to, to homebrew that stuff if you want to. And also if there's a story towards both, so I'm sure like at some point in time someone will probably homebrew that. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I also know that it is extremely hard to move backwards on a long-term game, uh, to have previously offered an option and then in future games, take that back off the table can be conceived as frustrating as opposed to interesting, uh, games workshop. I know struggles with this a lot is usually there are certain factions or components of Warhammer or Warhammer 40k that go in and out of Vogue. Uh, and sometimes they just retire certain chunks of their thing. And they try to explain away 
maybe why that is a vampire has done this too. I mean, you know, certain bloodlines and clans were, were disappeared and, and, and V20 brought them all back. Yeah. Uh, um, and so sometimes it's like, you know, this just isn't working for our property anymore. So we need to get rid of them. And, and how you do that is why ways you can do that. But there's always going to be some section of your fan base that's going to have really loved that. Um, you know, everything from this has been a major component of the game or, you know, retiring to venture, for example, like I'll be like a huge shift and there are tons of people who love venture, but even like to that one fan who really loves the Kate of stone man, you know, they really <laughs> want to know whatever happened to them. Um, I mean, each corner of your property, if it's popular, will have a fan. And so you're always making a decision. So, I mean, it, it's a hard decision to make. And so I'm sure, uh, uh, the folks at Paradox and Renegades have, have, have thought through and, and made a decision with the best of intention, but I suspect they probably aren't participating a certain amount of this controversy because it's – I have to think that they know enough about the fan base to recognize that this is going to be, it's going to be a controversial decision. Oh, um, so, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, it's hard, uh, and, and I know I'm always – one of the reasons why when I design games, I'm reluctant to present options until I'm ready or I have a plan for them. So like, uh, Rumble Pugmire is a good example. Um, I have always, people are like, when are you going to offer rabbits? When are you going to offer elephants? When are you going to offer gorillas? You know, I, I'm always getting, when are you to offer X animal? Um, and so whenever I mention an animal in the text, I need to have some kind of plan for them. Because yes. the second I mention it, someone's going to want to play that. I've just learned that from years of being in the World of Darkness fandom. Mm. Um, no matter how much you say, this is not a player character, someone's going to go, but what if it was? Uh, so um, I, I don't mention things unless I either can frame it to say, this is here's why I cannot be a player character and why you probably don't want to play this, knowing that someone wants to want to play that. Or um, go, okay, here it is, and set that up for eventual release. Uh, Mice and Rats are a good example. Um, I mentioned them in the very first book, but it took me several years before I got to Squeaks and Deep. So there may be a plan like that in place for a spot. We don't know. Um, it would be interesting if that were the case because the Sabbat in 5th edition are in a very different place than they were in previous editions. You know, the, 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 the Sabbat Civil War did a lot of damage to that, that sect. Um, but I could see also wanting to present a very clear antagonist to fifth edition characters. Um, I mean, it was one of, I, I think the Belial's brood book for Requiem is underrated because it did exactly that. And people were expecting it to be a book like the then Sabat books. Here's yeah. how to play this Belial's brood as player characters. And they were never intended that, and they've never been presented as that. But instead they were like, here's four different ways to present these antagonists because it's sometimes really good to have just a really strong antagonist and clear direction for story guides and storytellers to be able to implement them. So I could totally see why having a Sabat book would be a very compelling, very genius, especially for people who aren't invested in the backstory of Vampire the Masquerade. So I'm very much, my, 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 the short sum up of my answer is I'm curious to see where it goes from here, but I'm not necessarily uh, uh, outraged. Yeah, uh, I, likewise, I'm not outraged. Uh, I mean, it takes a lot to outrage me about anything of which I'm a fan most of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, much the same as I very rarely get excited, which makes me sound quite dull, I suppose. Uh, I I never get 
terribly enthusiastic about something, but at the same time, I never get terribly disappointed by anything either. I just kind of coast. (laughs) And (laughs) so when it came to this, I I knew this was coming, and I anticipated that there would be some kickback, as you say. No doubt Paradox and Renegade assumed as much as well. Mm. I think it's a very bold direction. Uh, I think it's testament to the strength of ideas that our peers, uh, Karim and Justin and the rest, have that they they want to present this about this way and they want to essentially deliver on their thought of how the sabbat should look. And what's more, I would feel, I think I would feel more disappointed if they had come back in the exact same form as they were in the previous couple of editions. Mm-hmm. And I suppose this is the thing that it's always it's always the case as a game designer and as a fan, but mostly as a game designer, you see fans uh, rebuking a new edition because it might eliminate a playable option, as you say, uh, or it may change something, it may change a rule they really like, it may cut out a discipline power they've always loved or change it so that the tentacles in Obtenebration are now the shadows of Oblivion. So it's no longer thick, tangible black tentacles, it's now literal 2D shadows. Right. you know, there will always be something, as you mentioned, that some fans dislike the change of. However, if you retain everything as it was when it was first introduced, you are going to probably receive even more backlash yep. <laughs> because this so-called new edition doesn't do anything new. I remember when V20 came out, and I remember at that point I was just a humble fan, but I remember the... <laughs> people on the forums saying this is just uh, this is just copied and pasted text from revised edition I already own revised edition I already own all the books for revised edition so why have I just bought v20 right and keeping in mind listeners that as the 20th anniversary editions went on we got increasingly adventurous with them and turned them into newer editions than the previous ones so when it came to wraith and changeling especially they are quite advanced compared to their second edition versions. Mm -hmm. V20, when it came out, was supposed to be a celebration of a now-cancelled edition. Yep. Uh, So it wasn't trying to reinvent anything. But of course you had people saying, well, I already own all this content, so what's the point in having V20? Other than it's all in one place now. Mm -hmm. And you would have seen the same, but worse with V5 if uh, all of the sects looked the same, you know, all the playable options were the same, all that there had been no movement in the meta plot, all of this. So, as game designers, as companies responsible for publishing these books, you can never win 100% of the audience. It would just never happen outside of your first edition. And even then, people will complain (laughs) about what's in your first edition. Um, For my money, I am really happy that they have doubled down on the Sabat as antagonists because I think the way they have been presented so far in V5, it would have been a disappointment if they'd rolled back to being a big, warring, anti-Camarilla. Right. Uh, now they seem to be leaning more toward being that 
death cult of old, full of cannibals, brainwashed cultists, um, murderous maniacs, monsters, vampires that have somehow been able to stave off becoming a white without clinging on to humanity, which makes them utterly alien. And mm-hmm. there's elements of that in every prior edition. And I, sometimes revised edition, third edition, gets a bit of a bad rap for presenting the Sabbat as a truly playable sect, but it also presents some of the most nuanced ideas for the Sabbat, which also will appear in the V5 edition. So I like them being bogeymen and the kinds of things that make Camarilla and Anarch vampires think, you know, well, at least we're not doing that. Right. Or these these monsters are scary. They want to eat us. Mm-hmm. So there's even more reason to hide now, and also even more reason to band together. Uh, there's so many vampire games you play where the Ventru and the Torridor and the Bruja are only together due to some kind of enlightened self-interest and will turn on each other as soon as the Chronicle ends. But when you have external threats like the Second Inquisition and like the Sabbat, you now have reasons to stick together in an existential way. Um, so I think I, I'm I'm really happy with it. I can completely understand, however, why people who have been long-term fans of playing the Sabbat may be disappointed, uh, but like you said, they will be able to easily work with the content in the book to make them playable. Uh, again, having read it, I can tell you it is very easy to do, mm-hmm. and I think... I honestly think that for people new to V5 and people viewing Vampire through the lens of a TV show or a video game, uh, the Sabbat are being presented in an ideal way. Uh, if someone is new to Vampire with V5, it may in fact be a bit confusing to see this immense playable sect yep. that aren't there in the core book, but to have them presented as, oh good god, this is the worst of the worst, this is the bestiary, this is the Book of Vile Darkness, this is everything that could possibly be awful in Vampire, this is your Book of the Worm, use whatever term you want. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good, because if I'm an entry-level storyteller, I want to have a book that tells me what are some really horrible things that I can put in my chronicle. And the Sabbat are a really horrible sect. They always have been. It's just this book doubles down on it. Absolutely. I mean, and it's ultimately a book of plot, ho- plot hooks, which is something else that um, games like Vampire the Masquerade always really need. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So now we have gone halfway into our episode, and we should probably get onto the subject at hand. Yes. Uh, thanks for staying with us. <laughs> Uh, But, uh, yeah, we wanted to talk a little about the evolution of crowdfunding and our experience of it. Now, I wanted to start this actually talking about something that we uh, actually just mentioned, V20. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people misremember in, what is it called, the Mandela effect the V20 was a Kickstarter when it wasn't it was a pre-order program run through whitewolf.com of the time if Mm -hmm. I remember Mm -hmm. Uh, because I I pre-ordered it and you could pre-order to pick up a copy at the Grand Masquerade if you so wished uh, you know an ultra deluxe Uh, But it was never on Kickstarter. The first vampire book, and therefore Onyx Path's first 
project, in fact, was it Onyx Path at the time? I guess it was. Yes. Was yeah. uh, was the V20 Companion, mm-hmm. which was on Kickstarter. And that was a long, long time ago now, I suppose. What, 2014? 12. 2012. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. And things have changed a lot since then. Uh, yeah. So, so, Eddie... What would you say, when we first started getting into crowdfunding and when you started becoming aware of it, what was the impression of crowdfunding as a, I guess, as a means of pre-ordering, of placing a pledge down toward the fulfillment of a project? Uh, What was your impression of it? It's really interesting because I do remember I was in an interesting position. At the time, I was still with CCP, even though I was doing work with Onyx Path. And so I was able to hear both sides of the conversation, right? It was like I could see, I could hear Rich and Onyx Pass perspective on why crowdfunding was the direction they wanted to move in. And I could hear CCP's perspectives of it. Uh, so I was able to get a really good view on that. And uh, one of the things that I do not think has stuck around, but was very prominent in the early days of crowdfunding, was that it was seen as beneath bigger companies. It was seen as begging for money in a lot of yeah. ways. And I remember CCP being very concerned about allowing Onyx Path to do crowdfunding for that reason. It was the, well, why are we giving you a license and you turn around asking people for money? Uh, one of the, the counterpoints to that that Rich made at the time was that it, it's no different than the, the pre-order you just did. Um, uh, the big difference is um, people can pay even more and get unlock more options. It was, it was more flexibility, and uh, the the website can manage a lot of things that we had to build tools for and manage manually inside of CCP for V20. Yeah. Uh, so that was one piece of it that I think has largely fallen away as more and more companies do multi million dollar Kickstarters. Like you know, uh, Mystery Science Theater just did a second Kickstarter and made, I guess, like five six million dollars. I don't remember exactly how much. Um, so really established brands and companies are using crowdfunding and people are, are okay with that. Uh, the other one that I don't think has changed a lot, but uh, there has been some change in the front, is the perception of where the money goes. Um, when we when Onyx Path did the Exalted Kickstarter and it earns $600,000 at the time, I believe it was the most funded tabletop RPG Kickstarter until uh, 7C came along. Uh, and CCP, again, asked the question of why are they making $600,000 off of our property? Um, and again, explains anything that that money just doesn't go into someone's pocket. Mm. That money goes into printing the books and distributing the books and paying the authors and paying the artists and paying the layout people, um, you know, in producing the, the different tchotchkes and stretch goals that we made, you know, that nearly all that money goes into. And then uh, there's a percentage that goes to the license holder on top of that. So um, at the end of the day, very little profit was made. Uh, and I think, I don't think even Mayor, I think the, even then the profit would, it was, was on par with just selling books outright. Yeah. Which is ultimately where you want to be, right? You, you want to, if you're making more money, then you probably have misestimated your costs um, or you cut corners somewhere or well, whatever. Well, if but I it, may interrupt briefly, sure. uh, mm-hmm. that, that is one of the common 
criticisms or accusations leveled at companies that run Kickstarter. And I think that that they, they see the amount of money going in. And it's because it is a relatively open process where you do see the amount of money that's being pledged. Right. Uh, it can make some people feel, I guess, almost resentment or suspicion mm-hmm. that, you know, I paid X amount for this book. You managed to earn X, Y, Z amount. Therefore, where's my book? Right. Um, uh, You know, or therefore, why is this book not plated in gold? Mm -hmm. Um, To to be hyperbolic about it, the the translation that I think some people make in their mind when they see the amount of money going up isn't this money is now needed to print X number of books to a certain amount of quality, a certain, uh, I guess, yeah, a certain printable quality, uh, to distribute, to also fund the creation of stretch goals, and as you say, pay writers, pay editors, pay artists, pay layout artists, potentially give them increased money as well, uh, if that was part of the advertised Kickstarter, uh, and and so on. But I think that it loses something in translation because a lot of people just see the money figure going up and all they really identify is the amount they've put in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, well, I paid this, you've earned that much now, so why can't my book be delivered to me earlier? And I actually found an answer to this recently, like as in yesterday. Um uh, Netflix has a great documentary series called Explained. Um, and sometimes they'll do uh, a series of episodes around a particular topic. Uh, so they also have money explained. And one, in their student loans episode, uh, they sorry, not student loans, uh, credit cards episode, um, they talk about why it's so hard for people to pay down credit cards. Um, and they, and, and uh, psychologists talked about with uh, the immediacy effect is that um, uh, there's an anchor point where if you see a certain number, um, you can intellectually understand that there may be factors that need to be considered, but you can't really stray far from that one number that you anchored on. And it's usually the first noteworthy number you see, you tend to anchor on that. And in the Kickstarter, you have this big, bold goal number of how much money you've made. And I think that's what's happening, is that you can sit there and do your pie chart breakdowns of budgets and here's how we expect where the money to go and this is how we're how much it's costing us per unit so this is how much we're having to spend on it and people can see that and intellectually understand that and recognize that these are all costs that are valid and important but they're still going to see that six hundred thousand dollar number and go but where is that money going it's like i just yeah. told you right yeah. um but the same thing with credit cards is the um you see I owe $10,000. Oh my, I have to, I, I'm in that, I'm so in debt and whatnot. And you're not thinking about the, okay, well, if it's $10,000 and I break it down by monthly payments and that's, you know, less than a thousand dollars a month and oh, I could probably afford that. But you keep seeing $10,000 and getting nervous and making bad decisions because you keep seeing that large number. Oh, you get, well, it's, um, it's a fallacy you get as a writer as well. Mm-hmm. The idea that, oh my God, I've got a 20,000 word assignment. I've got a blank page in front of me. And as soon as you start structuring that work and dividing it into sections, and I now do it for writers in outline, 
I will say, uh, spend this much word count of this chapter on this and this much of right. this chapter on that, it makes people start working faster because it has given them uh, red lights, essentially. You know, I can drive this far as long as I get through that much in the next two days. Good, I've completed a section of my overall assignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, it's the same thought process. Exactly. So um, I, I think that that's something that by the nature of Kickstarter or by the nature of crowdfunding, I should say, because all crowdfunding sites do that. Um, I, I think that there it's always going to be a factor because the dirty secret of a lot of crowdfunding campaigns is that it's also a marketing campaign. Um, at the end of the day, it's, it's not a pre-order. And, and even though in the early days, uh, it was very much perceived as such by, by both the users and the uh, creators. Um, there's a reason why Kickstarter has all these things, but it's not, it's not a pre-order system. You're investing in something that may or may not happen. Um, and that's good and that's correct. And that's the way it should be going. But um, people naturally gravitate towards things that they understand the structures they understand. Uh, but one of the things that we understand as consumers in a capitalist society is the idea of a time sensitive sale. Uh, you know, if I don't buy this thing that's at a percentage off by this date, then it will be more expensive later. Mm. Um, and so part of the thing that crowdfunding campaigns do is they build hype for the product as well as generate money for it. So it's the, well, you, know, you know, this thing's being thing. And, and if you don't back it before, you know, the next five days, then you can't get access to this special price or these special add-ons or even just this community of people who can say that they brought this thing to life. Well, on the subject of the evolution of crowdfunding, that's something, in fact, one of our writers, uh, David Castro, recently raised uh, the question mm-hmm. of early bird funding of mm-hmm. Kickstarters because that was something that you saw a lot more of when Kickstarter was new. Yeah, I find uh, in our industry, I can't speak for Kickstarter as a whole, they may still be quite prevalent. But it seems that as companies have become increasingly aware of the costs of things like, I don't know, shipping, which is a ridiculous extortion when it comes it is. to uh, global uh, shipping, especially. Um, the The benefits of early bird funding are very much do very much seem to be outweighed by the costs i'm i'm prepared to be proven wrong uh, and who knows so we may go back to it one day but my understanding is and by all means correct me if i'm wrong that the idea of early bird funding is as you just say if you back within the first five days you will get this extra thing or mm-hmm. your paper will be a fraction better quality than the next poor bugger, that, that, that sort of thing. And then, therefore, if you back after that, not only do you not gain that benefit, breeding a little bit of resentment, perhaps, uh, the company has now got to run two print runs uh, for two different quality books, or they've now committed to creating a product that is only going to be going to a select few number of backers that may well have drummed up hype at the beginning of the Kickstarter, but isn't necessarily going to pay off in the long term. I guess it might. It depends on how well they cost it. But you don't you don't see those very often now, do you? Right, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is I think a lot more of that was before the idea of stretch goals became normalized in crowdfunding campaigns. Hmm. Um, so it's the we have to have a reason for people to 
invest as fast as possible because otherwise you're going to see a continual trend downward, which makes sense from a sales, a, a traditional sales perspective. Um, it's, it's called the long tail. It's like you start off with strong as the second day you release. And then over time, it eventually drops off uh, to becomes either nothing or very close to nothing. Uh, that's one of the reasons why in traditional sales, you do see a, a time sensitive sales because it's a way to add an uptick in uh, sales projections. And so I will sell more units at less money, but I will probably make more money overall because I was sold three or four times more items than the discount would have offset. Yeah. Um, but that is specifically, you do those kinds of things and you do special events and you do all that stuff and new editions, frankly, um, specifically to get that long tail back up. Uh, and Kickstarters, when we first started them, it was assumed the sales trajectory would be very similar. Um, uh, probably in a much more compressed time frame. So early bird stuff was to get as many people buying in at the front so that the drop-off was not as steep. Um, there's a lot of reasons why that is a, a felonious, or sorry, a incorrect assessment. Um, but one of the, the things is that stretch goals softens that curve to a degree. Yeah, uh, which is part of it, because it's the now I have a new thing to try. There's always a new thing to try to hit. There's always a moving target. Now I have this new thing I want. There's this new thing I want. So there's a, a, a more of reason to have sustained interest throughout the campaign rather than needing to front load as many sales as there's a top. The other is that crowdfunding has so consistently shown that it actually has a U shape. Um, it, it's almost uh, a meme now, but really I think it's like 80% of your sales comes from the first and the last 48 hours of your campaign. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how many times I have seen people, other Kickstarter creators who are like, you know, it's three days until the campaign ends and I haven't quit any funding yet. And it's like, give it a minute. And then sure enough, in the last 48 hours, they go over the line. I mean, we, we were both on one. Yeah. Um, as freelancers, not an Onyx Path one, but one, a, a campaign that is currently ongoing. Uh, the Ghost Show Press, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. We didn't know if uh, if it would fund, uh, or the creators weren't sure. But mm -hmm. I guess some of us who have been in in the trade now for a while were kind of thinking, yeah, give it, give it a few days. It, it'll pick up because Kickstarter comes with a wonderful tool, and I'm sure most crowdfunders do. Yeah, mm -hmm. remind me button or save this project or whatever, because. All of a sudden, two days left, people get an email, and again, there's that sense of urgency. Oh, I've got it back within the next two days, or I'm going to lose my chance. Right, and and, and uh, consistently, it works both ways. Like, if the, if the campaign's done extremely well, in those last two days, it's the, well, everyone's buying into this, so I should probably get it now, buying all these extra um, stretch goals or whatever. Or if it's about to fund and say, well, if I want this at all, this is in any way, I need to back it now. So... Both states are incentive to back at the last minute, which is yeah. not something you see in traditional sales. No, I've, I've been affected by that as a customer, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, probably more on board games than anything else, uh, usually because in those last 48 hours, I can have a pretty good scope of all of the additions that have been thrown in. And that's something worth mentioning, again, regarding crowdfunding evolution. 
additions in the forms of stretch goals uh, right. and uh, how they at one point lar- were largely physical. And uh, we didn't... I'm trying to think when we first started doing stretch goals in a serious way. I don't remember us doing it with with Companion. Uh, uh, no, we did. Um, with Companion, all the stretch goals were, we're going to add more material to the book. Ah, uh, yeah. We realized, I think it was around uh, Lore of the Clans, that doing the Companion-style book made more sense because what we ran into with... with uh, V20 Companion and a couple other earlier projects was it's the, well, now the book is bigger, which means we have to recost the unit cost of the printing because now the spine is bigger, um, there are more pages that have to be printed, and that changed the math entirely to the point where sometimes it got really close to losing money. As a yeah, yeah, it meant that people have been backing for, let's say, 20 bucks uh, for mm-hmm. a book that is actually worth 40 Yep. And at that point, oh, well, I've just added a lot of money <laughs> to this. Uh, not, not a lot of money, a lot of pages, a lot of art. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. A lot of people I don't think consider it isn't just the size of the book. It's paying for the people to add that size. Yep. Uh, there's And art is the big co- is in some ways the big cost mm-hmm. um, when it comes to RPGs. I remember when I backed Horror on the Orient Express, which was probably the first campaign I ever kickstarted. And this was a Chaosium project. It's been it was it's fairly famous or infamous now for some of the problems that it went through. And thank goodness, eventually it delivered, and it delivered everything it was promising, as far as I'm aware. Uh, I'm I love my Orient Express set. Yep. But the sheer volume of additions that went with it at no additional cost to the backers was, in retrospect, a an unwise decision, to put it kindly, because mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're relying on new customers to backfill the cost that is being created for all of the existing customers who are effectively getting all of these additional things for free and and it translates on a similar level to doing things like adding extra pages to a book although the costs are slightly reduced when compared to creating props and in the case of Orion Express things like die cast cutouts and everyone getting their own unique dice and table mats and pencils with the Orient Express logo on and things like that there's a point where it could almost be considered a bit indulgent um but we we moved on at what I I'm kind of thinking was Beckett's the last book we did on Kickstarter where we added chapters to the book I think so yes because yeah. Beckett's doubled in size yeah almost uh, I, I added I'm trying to think I think we added about six or seven chapters by way of the Kickstarter right and I I, I think that was the last one because I remember having conversations because also because Beckett's was very um, artifact heavy yeah. Um, it added not only all of the costs talked about, but also it was a huge time sink for Mike specifically. Um, but also the, the original intent when, we, when I pitched it way back in the day was to be kind of a little travel diary book. It was meant to be <laughs> kind of a small thing that you could use as a prop, and then it became the 600-page behemoth. And it looks gorgeous, but also wasn't the form factor that was originally in my head. No. Not not so much a diary as a compendium of diaries stretching across across ten years. 
Right. It's like Beckett bought one really big 600 page diary and it's like, no, I'm ready for this. I, I've, I've got the next 20 years <laughs> of my life planned. Well, that's how a vampire should do it. No, true, true. But also, I would like to know where he buys those because oh, I find the fun 192 page ones. Well, so we moved on to providing stretch goals and, you know, speaking purely from the Onyx Path perspective, but I have seen other companies do similar, uh, doing stretch goals as free PDFs mm-hmm. of upcoming books uh, that are being funded in part by the Kickstarter for the, well, the one being Kickstarted, uh, and sometimes a discount of those stretch goals if uh, you're to buy them print on demand. So you buy them at cost. So it's not costing us anything, but it's costing you less to do it. Right. Um, which is where we have kind of sat now uh, for the last few years it seems to be working out all right doing it in that method uh, and you know we, you do we do examine it and at some point soon we're going to have James Bell our uh, crowdfunding campaign aficionado and empresario in other words ending in O mm-hmm. on <laughs> to discuss that in greater detail the sort of how these things are plotted out and staggered uh, and so on mm-hmm uh, but yeah, that seems to work out well. But you know, as a consumer, I do sometimes wonder whether, and this is me not not speaking for the company, just me speaking, I guess, uh, just very much independently. How much? How much less would we make, or if we weren't offering stretch goals? And if these stretch goal books were being released, I guess, ad hoc, uh, how much would we be making then? Um, because we know source books often, often source books released, uh, I guess, divorced from a Kickstarter campaign do less well than a Kickstarter. So a stretch goal book is somewhere in that in the middle ground. It's not an independent product. Uh, that is being released into the wild without a crowdfunding, but nor is it being crowdfunded sort of in toto. It is a book that is being provided to backers of a Kickstarter at no cost if they just want it in PDF and at a reduced cost if they do want it in print. And yeah, uh, sometimes I play through my mind, you know, well, is this book, should we have done it like this or should we have, I guess, made this as a separate product and reap the rewards for doing so i think there's two uh, p- uh prongs to kind of think about that regards to uh the one is that we have over time kind of adjusted to kickstarter stretch goals that either um help support the game directly so things like Jumpstarts, for example. Let's say I just bought this big book. I want to get my friends involved with it. Oh, now I got a free PDF for a Jumpstart so I can just jump right in, play the game, see if my friends like it or not. That's yeah. a kind of a direct support of the thing you bought. Um, uh, and also things like um, uh, Kickstarter uh, t-shirts and and uh, you know uh, screens and whatnot. These are all things that are very obvious uh, uh, outgrowth of that. Um but also we've been moving more towards doing books that we might not have been able to do financially if it wasn't a stretch goal. Mm. Uh, NWE, I think, is actually a very good example of that. I think we would have a much harder time convincing, uh, uh, I mean, Rich, but also to a degree, I think just as a whole, as a company, I think we would have a hard time justifying doing something like a, a, a meaty 
wrestling source book for Aberrant when there's so many more obvious books we could be doing for that line before that. Yeah. Whereas because it was a stretch goal, it's something that, okay, well, it's already paid for. I mean, you know, the, we, we have the money's in hands and we can apply it directly to uh, the creators to make sure they make that. So it's already cost neutral for us. Um, and so we could be more experimental. We can do stuff like let's hire Justin to write basically whatever the heck he wants for, you know, aberrant, you know, it's fiction for like, you know, 5,000 words. Um, let's hire, you know, an extremely well-respected art, art author like Paul Jenkins in the comic book industry and have him write a comic book issue for us. These are things that are like, that would be really cool to do. But if we had to pay the costs up front, it would not necessarily make business sense, but we can try those more experimental things and see how they do. Mm. Um, so it's like if, NWE really takes off and people are really excited about it even after the Kickstarter, even after Kickstarter for Flintland, if, if it continues to sell really well. It's like, okay, well, maybe there's something here we could look at. And then we learn something. Um, so it allows us to be experimental in a way that is makes good business sense for us and it gives people access to things that they probably would never have seen otherwise. So that's one prong to think about. The other is I have been seeing a rise in other companies who just don't do stretch goals at all. Um, the one I'm thinking of right now specifically is the uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse. Uh, they put out a new edition of their card game. Yeah. And Sentinels has an extremely well-established fan base, who, like, much like ours. They are trained to go to the latest Kickstarter. Um, they usually fund extremely well, a very strong um, uh, community and very strong goals. So they could be confident that that would have funded. But uh, I listened to um, their podcast letter page, um, much like this one. So it's like it's the creators talking about their business side of things. And they said the specific reason was because they didn't want to, A, add any more complexity to it because they had enough on their plate just making that game. So it's like by adding new things, it would have made it harder to deliver the core thing you wanted to deliver. It's something you learned from past Kickstarters. Mm. And B, because it was a new edition and they knew a lot of people weren't necessarily going to want to part with their old versions of the cards. I already bought every card in this from the previous issue. I don't necessarily want to buy these old heroes again, just for new arts and a couple of polished mechanics. So by reducing the stretch goals, it's the, they, the product can stay on its own. It's like, you know, if you back it day one or day 30, nothing really changes. So you yeah. can have 30 days to think about whether you want to do this or not. And if you don't, then that's, it's, it's, no harm, no foul, but they're treating it very much like the the very pre-order system that I was saying that Kickstarter isn't traditionally supposed to be perceived as, but they were using it as a pre-order system. But almost yeah, yeah, it, it very much sounds like a pure pre-order mm -hmm. process uh, over what has been associated with the Kickstarter campaign, which does have all those bells, whistles, stretch goals, and and so on. Right, and, and for yeah. their company, it makes sense. It's like we already have this established Kickstarter community who's used to buying things through Kickstarter. Mm. So let's just use Kickstarter as a pre-order system. Um, and because Greater Than Games over the past 10 years have established themselves as a company that delivers on Kickstarter goals, it can be used as a pre-order system and the cu customers can be confident that they'll pretty much get th what the thing that they pledged for so they can do that not everyone can do that but they can do that. and i'm seeing more established companies who've done lots of kickstarters are moving towards that and also flash kickstarters like i'm only gonna do it for two weeks so there's no time for stretch goals yeah it's just here's the thing i'm presenting give me money for it or not and then we're done um so 
the idea, like, it's, like I said, the evolution was stretch goals became a thing, and then everyone started doing them. And now, start, some companies have, to be blunt, gone bankrupt over stretch goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now there's a lot of reconsideration about what to do with them. And in our case, like I said, we're, we're moving towards what additional benefit do we get as a company from presenting the stretch goals? But other companies are like, let's just not have them at all. Let's just do that sales, that, that, that long tail. But because so many people are now comfortable with crowdfunding as a concept, we're, they're, they're still seeing an uptick at the end because that's just how people engage with crowdfunding now. So it, it, it has been normalized enough that people buy in this pattern so they don't necessarily have to prime the pump to change the pattern because the pattern's already established over 10 years. Yeah, it's a, it's an in, it is a very interesting phenomenon. And again, when we get James on, I'm sure he'll be able to talk about it in greater oh, sure. depth. The idea that you can almost drown your customer base in stretch goals and at the same time drown your own company. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I guess by drowning your customers, you deprive yourself of water. That, that's an elegant way of saying it. There you because go. by, let, let's say... Your Kickstarter does gangbusters. You fund, you find yourself putting up on the Kickstarter page. This is our 20th stretch goal. It's the 20th book that's going to expand our setting with even more classes in. You will mm-hmm. get this for free because you backed the core book. And this means you are now due to receive 20 stretch goals that we have funded with this campaign. Now. In the hypothetical situation where this were to happen, and we know that there have been cases where it has, mm-hmm. if that developer behind the core book was somehow able to get teams of writers and artists to work simultaneously on all 20 of those books, mm-hmm. they may be able to break even. Yeah, uh, maybe. But the longer it takes the more likely it is that the customers are going to drown in this uh, complete glut of products. And also the cost of business is going to go up. Mm-hmm. And eventually the the amount of money they put down to fund your core book is going to run out and you're going to be paying out of your own pocket to pay to make all of these stretch goals that you have promised people. Or you're going to have to go back to the backers cap in hand and either say you're either going to have to pay for these or they're not going to be made. Yeah, um, and video games yeah. in particular, video game crowdfunding pro- have run into that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the sci-fi game uh, that did this. They, f- they famously ran out of money and then went back and re-crowdfunded. But um, there have been uh, a plenty of, of video game things where the like, same thing happened. Like, we projected it to take X number of months. It took Y number of months, and we ran out of money to pay our programmers and engineers and artists to finish this. So we don't have a game. Um, because of all the extra stuff we want to add in. Uh, some companies can pull out of that. Uh, but you're right. I mean, let's assume that this is a tabletop game company that funded 20 books. Uh, if they are a relatively small company, um, let's even say they're Onyx Path size, um, you can only realistically get two or three of those books simultaneously and keep any kind of creative control over them. Yeah. Uh, which means, and each book, if it's, ticking along and nothing bad happens um, for supplements six to nine months is a pretty reasonable time frame from start to finish, which means that that's what six, seven years to get all those books done. Mm-hmm. So you're really committing to nothing, but this, you can't make 
any changes in your course. You've got to only deliver those books because if you put even a single book out that's not one of those stretch goals, some fans are going to go, why are you working on that instead of this thing that you promised us? Yeah, and your fans aren't going to be spending any additional money on your other products because they're waiting for all the free products that they have just, well, all the products that they don't feel are free because they have just funded them. Right. So they know they're going to be receiving a steady diet of source books. Therefore, why would we spend additional money? Right. Uh, so, and yeah. one, one place that uh, um, uh, I noticed this has changed is in comic book uh, crowdfunding. Uh, because early on, crowdfunding, very natural stretch goals. If we hit this stretch goal, we'll give you issue two. If we hit this stretch goal, we issue issue three. Um, yeah. And a lot of them went bankrupt as a result. And so now what I'm seeing is each issue is its own distinct campaign. Mm-hmm. Because they they recognized that that was not a viable business model for exactly the stuff we just talked about. Well, I think that covers everything. Uh, minus one point. That by the time this episode goes out, we will have ventured onto a new Kickstarter horizon, which is Exalted Essence. Yes. Hmm. Now, I know it's uh, not the done thing to give predictions, though we have done before. And we We've like to done it almost every time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think this one's going to do very well. I think Exalted fans have been waiting for this game for quite some time, and yep. the appeal of it the idea of having those playable options all in one place, the system being condensed, the setting being presented in an accessible way, all of that, it, it uh, I think, appeals. it's going to appeal to established fans and to new people who were intimidated by Exalted 3rd Edition. That's my hope Agree. Uh, and expectation. So here's hoping it manages to hit its target in a timely fashion and maybe... Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll put a couple of stretch goals, maybe a T-shirt and a GM screen, and then we'll call it even. <laughs> um, I I think it's going to do way better than that. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if it's over $200,000, honestly. Okay, so you're going to say over 200000 I will say 199000 As you always do. Yeah. The price is right bullshit. <laughs> the price is bullshit. <laughs> the price is bullshit. <laughs> We'll put that in uh, as a as a quote on the Exalted Essence <laughs> Kickstarter. The price is bullshit. Matthew Dawkins on its podcast. <laughs> uh, no, I'm sure the price will be eminently reasonable. And yeah, sure. uh, our absent colleague Dixie will be uh, co-shepherding that Kickstarter. So mm-hmm. by all means, if you have any questions about it, do post in the comments on the Kickstarter. We love for you to engage with the community uh, and with our creators, whether it's on the Kickstarter, whether it's on our forums, uh, whether it's on our Discord. I recommend going toward the Discord right now over the forums. Uh, I understand that due to the sheer volume of exalted threads that are on the forum right now, that there's something of a backlog of when those threads even appear. Uh, I'm not, not even exaggerating. So if you have a burning question regarding exalted go to the Discord and ask on there because you will get an answer far quicker than you will if you post it on the forum. Uh, But yeah, don't be afraid to ask questions, make suggestions, and interact. We like it when the fans speak their minds, and we love to help them if we can. So, yeah. Uh, And also, I have no doubt this is going to be another Kickstarter where the manuscript gets uh, released bit by bit to the backers, Mm -hmm. as that is something we didn't touch upon, but it's something we started doing 
Oh, I'm trying to think. What was the first book where we did that? We were doing that by Law of the Clans, weren't we? Um, uh, well, it's, it's um, so it's weird because uh, I, I there was a so originally we had open development, yeah, uh, and that was divorced from crowdfunding. Um, uh, there was a lot of uh, let's do this in separate space, and, and pretty quickly we overlapped the open development with the crowdfunding, and it makes sense mm. to kind of you know have you simultaneously. Um, we pretty quickly merged them, but I remember like for the Pugmire Kickstarter, I gave what I called the early access version, that was at the front. Because I said, I want, I want to have a playable version of the game people can play and start doing right away. Um, it was later, like Monarchies of Mal, I think at the point where we started actually piecing out the manuscripts. Uh, so somewhere between there, it was shifted. I, I believe Lore of the Clans was still, uh, you can, no, no, right, we were doing it in pieces, but we were still had open development separate thing because people were getting links to the Google Drive documents I had put up. Ah. Because I remember um, even after the campaign had closed, people were still sitting, hey, I closed down the files because they were done. I had already made the changes. Um, and so I go, so-and-so wants access to your file. So-and-so wants access to your file. I had to actually delete the file entirely to get people to stop pinging me to use those links. Like, those <laughs> links are invalid. Um and that was when I think we started moving to uh, uh, let's just give them the, the documents so we could avoid that particular logistical overlap. Uh, and then uh, it was Dixie that I remember came up with the idea of let's actually have uh, a spreadsheet form that people could start sending errata in through. Yeah. Um, and that's when we kind of hit the the, the, the the structure right now because we were separately having the errata in a form. So like early on, it was open development was in one space commentaries either on those documents or in a different space and then the counterflow was the third space and it was just a lot um so now we've consolidated all into the crowdfunding platform and it's all one space which makes a lot more sense um and again by having the manuscripts staged out uh there's always something new to talk about which is a good way to keep momentum during a 30-day campaign yeah, yeah, we get a lot more engagement by doing it this way than when we released entire manuscripts for people to look at because I think it's intimidating. If you're mm -hmm. given a whole core book and it's in a Word file or a Google Doc, it's not terribly appealing or engaging to read through a 200-page document that looks like that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, if you're getting it chapter by chapter over the course of, let's say, one chapter every three days, you should have enough time to read it on your lunch breaks and evenings and engage with it a little more. It seems to work well for us. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we get a lot more feedback now than we did then. It's true. So, Absolutely true. Uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, anyway, yeah, so Exalted Essence is currently running. Hopefully it's hit 199999 and has stopped. <laughs> Not gone any further. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if so, Eddie owes me a Coke. And if not, I owe him a bag of Coke. <laughs> so with, 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 with that said, uh, Eddie, if people want to find you online, where would they look? Uh, you can find me at Pugsteady.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Pugsteady, and you can find me in the aforementioned Onyx Path Discord, usually in the Onyx Path Hash channel. But if your Coke dealer's looking for you, you're out of the country. And I, I don't know who you're talking about. My name is Matthew Dawkins. There you go. And, uh, <laughs> and if people want to find Dixie, where should they go? Uh, you can find her at Dixie Cyanide, uh, just about every social media account. 
and they can find me on matthewdawkins.com, they can find me on Twitter as DawkinsMP, and they can find me on the Onyx Path Discord as Matthew Dawkins. I sometimes go by the codename of Pie Fingers for reasons oh. long and varied. It's actually us varied now. I've had Pie Fingers, I've had Pie Thumb, I've had Pie Pie Pie, Pie Face, Pie R Squared. <laughs> and... <laughs> The reason will remain a mystery for now, but uh, needless to say, I am a man of many pies. And not only that, but many worlds, one pie cast. (laughs) 